Curtain going up. Places, please. Overture, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. What is up, everybody? I am ending this shit show year with a very good episode. Um, I had the opportunity to speak with Alec Pleitzes. He is a national security professional, a Bronze Star Medal recipient, a U.S. Army combat veteran of the Iraq War. Um, He did serve in Afghanistan as well as a defense civilian intelligence officer and at the Pentagon as chief of sensitive activities. Um, which was for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. We got to talk about a lot of different subjects. We discussed all the things, his time in the Army and at the Pentagon, during the Obama administration, what his thoughts are on some of Donald Trump's most recent moves at the Department of Defense and the Pentagon. We talked about the bureaucracy of the American government, the Iran nuclear deal, We discussed uh, the election and the incoming Biden administration, a.k.a. Obama 2.0, some of the choices that he's making as far as his administrative staff, uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the Arab and Israel peace deals. We really covered a wide range of subjects, so I highly encourage you to take the opportunity and the time to listen to this episode because Alex was absolutely phenomenal, and I learned quite a bit from the episode. So I'm super excited to share it with you at this final hour of the 2020 year. Please subscribe, share with your friends. Okay, I love you guys. Have a happy new year. I wish you all the very best. Okay, I'm so pumped about this. I've been researching and making sure I have all my ducks in a row before we get on the phone. So um, introduce you, everybody. This is Alex. We've become great friends over the course of the last month, I would say. Um, yeah. With that being said, let's talk a little bit about I – want, I want you to talk about your background first. So you were in the Army. You were a PSYOP. Mm-hmm. Um, if I mm-hmm. remember correctly, you were 4th Infantry Division. Um, you were in the 312th, right, which is in Maryland. Uh, yeah, 312th Company. We were originally assigned to support the 4th Infantry Division in Baghdad in 2008. Okay. So I found this really cool picture of you where you guys were getting ready to go on a leaflet drop, and uh, it was yes. taken through <laughs> night vision. It was a really, really cool picture. It was fun. I spent, unfortunately, the better part of 60 nights out of about 90 and three months hanging out of a Black Hawk at 3 o'clock in the morning, shaking uh, <laughs> wanted leaflets over terrorist household in downtown Baghdad. Those are <laughs> A couple of flights I could have done without. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about what that world was like first. So what made you decide to join? I, I know your story, but I want you to tell my listeners. So, Sure. Um, so I grew up in uh, just outside New York City and then in New York City itself uh, for my high school years. Um, okay. and I was a volunteer fireman, I guess, in the last all-volunteer department before you hit the Bronx, which is uh, one of the boroughs of the city. So I ended up at the Trade Center after uh, days after 9-11, uh, really no business being there because I was a junior member of the department, um, engaged in, uh, I guess, you would call it search and rescue operations, but it was essentially really just, you know, it was a bucket brigade. We're digging out and using that. So it was a big wake-up call at a young age, and, um, you know, I went to college in D.C., and then uh, in the course of my undergraduate studies, one uh, kid in a political science class basically said we deserved 9-11 based on foreign policy. I uh, about jumped the desk. Professor broke it up, and uh kid got the parting shot and basically said, why don't you do something about that guy? 
So I went back to the dorms, had a beer, Army commercial came on, and the rest was history. <laughs> so did you ever go back to school? I wondered this. It, I didn't see anywhere did. where you did. No, no, I did. So yes, you joined the reserves, actually. So I went into the Army yeah, Reserves, so actually. So I missed, uh, I missed a semester while I was gone for training, and I was in over the summer. Then I came back to college. So when I deployed, actually, was as uh, an activated reservist. So I went back to school and finished, and then I went to graduate school in between uh, uh, later deployment trips afterwards as well. That was at uh, Johns Hopkins. Awesome. And what did you get your educational background in? So undergrad, I studied political science, and then graduate school was uh, global security studies. Okay. And so you went and you hung out at airplanes and dropped leaflets and played loud music and won the hearts and minds of the people of Iraq. And <laughs> tried, tried for a little bit. I had the team on the ground in uh, Sadr City, which is the uh, uh, at that point it was the third battle scene American sniper. So we had about a good ten weeks of block to block fighting. So unfortunately, uh, uh, we lost a couple of guys during that fight, but it was um, it was definitely a, a formative uh, part of my professional experience. Uh, so that that tour meant uh, meant a lot. It was the surge or the tail end of the surge, anyway. So when did you decide, or what? I guess, motivated you to decide to move out of the military and into, I guess, civilian side. What made you decide to make that move? Sure. So I had the option of commissioning after graduating, and um, I decided I didn't want to go active duty. So I remained in the reserves, and I uh, I skipped out on, a, on the opportunity to commission so I could make sure I went on that tour when I graduated from college. Uh, and then when I came back, um, I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience, uh, you know, working with the Department of Defense. So I then decided I was going to pursue opportunities continuing to work um, in the national security arena. So I ended up, um, when I came back, I worked as a contractor first uh, for um, uh, First Information Operations Command. as was part of the Army Intelligence Security Command headquarters. And mm-hmm. then uh, an organization called JIDO. So it was stood up to defeat roadside bombs as, as a uh, weapon of strategic influence. So there was a group of about 36 of us in the Special Activities Division there. And our job was, or Sensitive Activities Division, and our job was to basically go after bomb makers and their networks and the supply chains. So I ended up going back to Iraq, um, and the team was comprised of a mix of uh, guys who had been either prior service or still in the National Guard Reserves as either Green Berets, uh, some uh, couple of former Rangers, um, and then I think two former SEALs and guys who were involved in either human or counterintelligence. So collectively, um, our job was to kind of utilize those skill sets to help employ uh, technologies and some strategies to help defeat the, uh, the bomb networks. Now, is this Good. part of that mission that you, like, is this the one in 2012, the mission that you went on while you were working for the Undersecretary no. of Defense? Okay. No, so that was in 2010. Uh, it was back to okay. Iraq a second time. Um, when I got back from that trip, I was hired by the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, yes, to do some strategic programming, um, some classified work um, for a particular office. So while I was there, uh, I was asked by um, by CENTCOM, General Madison in command at the time, if I would go to Afghanistan and run the, a national intelligence uh program, which was kind of cool. So, yeah, that was in 2012. But we can't talk about that, right? That's like Fight Club. We can't <laughs> discuss that that part. I had a good time. I was kind of lost in the in the world between between operator and spy, but not really in either camp. So it was definitely um, definitely a fun experience. Uh, I had so somebody tell me yesterday, uh, they said, you should work for an agency. And I kind of laughed. I said, well, it makes you think I'm not already with an agency. And his response was, well, <laughs> but anyway, so it made me feel really good. It made me feel like maybe like a female version of James Bond. And then I had to go change a crappy diaper go. and I lost all imagery of, of being a, an illicit spy. So <laughs> you'd be surprised. 
you'd be surprised. Too too many visions of movies with uh, black ties and martinis, uh, you know, knocking off people at foreign embassies to do spy work. Right. Uh, more people changing diapers overseas that are then, uh, you know, gallivanting at nighttime doing what they need to do than you'd, uh, than you'd imagine. <laughs> They're not as far off as you think. Well, maybe I should look into it then. <laughs> yeah, never too late. Um, so then you went on after that, um, you went on mm-hmm. to work for the office of the assistant secretary for special operations and low intensity conflict. Is that correct? Yes. ASD Solix. So that's, so there's the undersecretary for intelligence and then the undersecretary for policy is essentially the number three. Okay. Um, and, uh, within there, within that, uh, office, there's, uh, a few assistant secretaries responsible for, uh, different portfolios, either geographic or functional. So the one I worked for basically oversaw our special operations forces and uh, sensitive activities and counterterrorism missions. But it's also unique in the sense that, um, like the service secretaries, like the Secretary of the Army, the Navy, and uh, and the Air Force, they oversee basically the build out of uh, of the Army and the Navy. So they're responsible for the man training equip portion. So when we go to war, we have a four star general in charge of our combatant commands around the world. It's kind of broken up geographically. Mm-hmm. And from there, when a war is fought, they'll essentially have a campaign plan or a contingency plan if it's being executed last minute. And they'll say, okay, in order to fight this plan, I need 400,000 soldiers, you know, 30 Navy ships, X number of Marines. And they basically, that's when the commandant of the Marine Corps, chief of naval operations, chief of staff of the Air Force, and uh, the chief of staff of the Army then cough off the forces to actually go fight the war. But special operations forces, which are separate, um, you know, they kind of quasi fall underneath the, the different services for caring and feeding but they don't have a secretary of their own. So the assistant secretary for special operations and low intensity conflict um, is kind of unique in that it's got service secretary-like responsibilities for manning and training forces and acquisition purchasing, in addition mm-hmm. to operations and oversight and policy development. So it's definitely a very unique office at the Pentagon. Yeah, it, it seems to me those jobs are typically split in other other sectors. So for it to be combined, I feel like that's a very unique position. It certainly is. Okay. And that's why it actually just a week or a couple weeks ago. So the acting secretary of defense, Chris Miller, um, who actually was a hold on, don't go to that part yet. One. We're going to get to that. Oh, time out. We'll that's, get there. Okay. We're, we're going there. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about you still a little bit because something that sure. is in your um, resume that I thought was really cool. You handled or helped facilitate the policy and operations for our hostage rescue program. Like you actually worked on the executive order that was issued in that regard. So talk to me a little bit about how that came into play. And I I have a specific question. So Obama, do you think that Obama, because you were there when he was in office, do you think that he mm-hmm. worked hard enough to get our people home around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a genuine desire to bring home all of our hostages. And they, they kind of fall into two separate categories. I mean, one are being held by criminal or terrorist organizations and the other ones are being held by state actors like, you know, the Iranians or uh, the North Koreans or whatnot. Right. Um, you know, the difference, I think, was that there was definitely a large bureaucratic apparatus that was put in place. Uh, I mean, I think they tried to move as quickly as they could, but that was the process that they had, that had put in place. So um, I can recall a couple situations where I thought we, you know, if we had acted quicker, we might have been able to uh, to hopefully help bring a couple more folks home. But, um, you know, that's Monday morning quarterbacking and you know, trying to what if afterwards. But, um, right. yeah, I mean, I can recall, recall a couple of situations where I thought we could have moved a little swifter. Okay. Um, like Otto yeah, Warmbier? Like- sorry. No, you asked about, oh, not Otto. I mean, because he was in North Korea. So the, the situation we were really tasked at looking at um, was more hostages by non-state actors. So 
um, you know, terrorist organizations and criminals gotcha. and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so like so, the yeah, people who are like wandering out, pretending that they're, I, I, I remember the story, like, I, I don't remember their names or anything, but it's like this couple that was like documenting their experience of, oh, it's not so bad out here. And they ended up getting captured. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is that? Um, do you recall? So there was, there was a couple, there was a U.S. and Canadian couple, um, that, uh, uh, that were captured after they decided to go hiking in. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so that was Caitlin Boyle and Josh. Um, it was Caitlin Coleman and Josh and Josh Boyle. So I was confused. I was putting their two last names together. So uh, yeah, I mean, but it was their case. The hikers that like, got lost going into Iran. It just seems to be that there are a lot of people who like to go lollygagging and hiking in war zones and third right. world countries with oppressive regimes. <laughs> Highly advise against doing that. That's <laughs> not helpful. Probably not. Not for diplomatic yeah, purposes, I mean, anyway. No, certainly not. And then more, you know, every time this happens, our, you know, most elite special operations forces and our intelligence assets are diverted to try to help and find these people, which is the right thing to do. They're American uh, nationals, you know, who are at risk there. But um, this wasn't like they were minding their own business and were kidnapped walking the main street somewhere. They decided to go pack a backpack and, you know, go hiking through Waziristan. So, um, you know, it's, it's not particularly helpful. No. Um, but go ahead and finish. I totally sidetracked you. Talk about. No, no, it's okay. I sidetracked you. You had asked me originally about the hostage policy review. So, yeah, um, it was kind of, it was, it was an interesting situation. So at the time, um, you know, ISIS had formed in the vacuum after we left Iraq in 2010. I was on staff there then. Uh, that was the, the tour we were just talking about previously. Um, and when they formed in the vacuum, um, they obviously, they were engaged in all kinds of barbarous activity, including, you know, beheading people and whatnot, and they had taken a lot of U.S. hostages. So believe it or not, the last time the hostage policy had been completely reviewed and, and written, actually, in the first place, was by then Captain McRaven, uh, who was Admiral McRaven afterwards, who was in charge of the Laden Raid, if you recall, uh, mm-hmm. in 2000 when he was assigned to work in the White House. So it hadn't been updated in wow. 15 years. Yeah. So, um, and it was kind of an interesting situation. So, overseas, the ambassador of the United States is the personal representative of the president of the United States and the senior government official in the country. So, the State Department will often take a lead in many cases, but, you know, obviously we don't have diplomatic relations with Al-Qaeda. So, that doesn't work out. And, um, you know, hostage taking is a criminal, is a criminal act. And so the FBI is involved as well. But when you're overseas, then who's got primacy? Uh, you know, the DOD is responsible for the, uh, you know, any of the rescue missions in most cases. Uh, they're not going to send another agency to do it. So you've got state, you've got FBI, you've got the Department of Defense, and then you've got various intelligence agencies who have little cells here or there dedicated to working on trying to locate people, you know, whether it's the NSA, you know, listening to phones or NGA with satellites. So part of what we had to do is take a look at the fractured way in which the government uh, kind of responded to hostage situations. Um you know, we did have uh, kind of a, uh, a fusion cell that we put together as one of our recommendations um, to start sharing intelligence and making sure that uh, there was a group dedicated to working to bring these folks home. And then they also nominated, um, I, think, I think it was a State Department recommendation, that we had a special envoy or ambassador for hostage affairs who would kind of work these issues nationwide. And what's funny is the first person to fill that role after we recommended it um, is the uh, was Robert O'Brien the, uh, the current uh, national security advisor? So he went from that role and became uh, President Trump's latest uh, national security advisor. So that was kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah, didn't didn't expect our little recommendation to actually you know turn into a full fledged position that ends up 
getting filled by a guy who becomes a national security advisor. So we had <laughs> little impact on his career, which was good, and, and on some cases helping to bring some people home. But uh, yeah, a couple of those cases will uh, will haunt me for a long time. We worked hard to find some of these people, and we just didn't get to them in time, and I'll, I'll never forget it. That's that's hard. I. I did an interview um, with the Operation Underground Railroad people and the yeah. watching what they have to do and the amount of effort and work that goes into trying to find some of these people and then sometimes coming up short. That has to be that, it, it's like it reminds me of like survivor's guilt. Yeah. You know, you, it, it's like you wanted to help them and why them and, and stuff like that. So I feel, I feel like that's rough. I mean, it was it was difficult in the sense you you personally invest yourself emotionally and intellectually in some of the cases. Like one in particular that really still haunts me is, uh, is Kayla Mueller. Um, so you know, she was kidnapped. She was forced to be married to uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi at one point, who was the ISIS head. And um, you know, we worked so damn hard to find her, and unfortunately, she was uh, she was killed over there and her um, or murdered, I should say. And her uh, her her name was the uh, I think it was the name of the operation that was then launched to end up killing. Baghdadi, but I remember yeah. one of the um, I remember one of the uh, rescue missions in uh, in another country in the Middle East, um, and literally about two weeks beforehand, members of, a, of uh, one of the one of the squadrons uh, belonged to a SEAL team from Virginia Beach uh, had come up, and uh, I had a buddy who was on the team, had another one of his guys, one of his fellow officer, and uh, sure enough, two weeks later, I'm sitting in the tank at the uh, the Joint Staff area, which is like the, the secure conference room. And we're watching a hostage rescue raid go down on footage, on drone footage. And I'm like, you know, I remember the director of the joint staff at the time asking, you know, who the hell is that, like, really tall seal that was there? And sure enough, the guy had been in my house two weeks prior, you know, having uh, having bourbon uh, in D.C. And now I'm watching him live on a drone footage, uh, you know, conducting a hostage rescue. So it was uh, definitely a surreal experience. I bet. The Kayla Mueller thing, I didn't know that she had been forced to marry him. I knew that. Yeah. Some other stuff took place, but I, I had no idea that she had to marry him. That's fucking terrible. It was absolutely awful. And I remember the intelligence came in and uh, uh, just, you know, reading through it and knowing that, you know, her family was working very hard to try to, you know, lobby the U.S. government to get her home. And uh, one of the other things that was difficult about that, I mean, so normally the FBI serves as liaison to the hostage families, um, particularly during the case while, they're, while the person is still being held if they haven't been declared dead or if we you know, don't know where they are. You know, a lot of senior members of the Obama administration in particular, I remember, um, I think it was Lisa Monaco, who was the Deputy uh, Homeland Security Advisor, I think, at that point. So she was, you know, speaking with hostage families and giving them, you know, trying to give them hope. But um, in a couple of cases, it was some false hope that, uh, you know, trying to, you know, give them a pep talk, like, hey, we're going to have you home by, you know, Christmas or something like that. Right. Now, I remember getting an email that was forwarded, went from the Deputy FBI Director to the Undersecretary for Policy, which landed on my desk, saying, uh, you know, do you guys have any rescue plans that we're unaware of? And I remember saying, what the hell are you talking about? Right. I called up Virginia Beach. I called up down to Fort Bragg to our two organizations that do the uh, hostage rescue mission. And, guys, what is this? Uh, and they came back and said, we don't know anything. We know you don't know anything. We don't know, you know where she is. Never mind, you know, have a rescue mission in place. Um, and it turned out it was just somebody speaking out of turn. And, you know, when the... Uh, when the next time they had a, uh, a liaison with the FBI, they repeated kind of what they've been told by the White House, that, hey, you know, we're going to have them home by Christmas. So, unfortunately, it was some false hope with the family. So, that's why you know, people just have to be very, very careful. Careful and, about what they You know, say. those types of situations. Yeah, because, you know, it, it breaks somebody's heart and somebody's child and loved one that's out there. God, man, that sucks. Totally, totally wild. And I was at the right age of 30 at that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
You're, it's funny. You've lived the life of like an 80 year old man and you're not very old at all, which is interesting. Yeah. I've um, kind of dumb luck in terms of stumbling through jobs and a couple of successes here or there that were able to catapult me. I don't even know. What do you do now? Like, I don't even know what your actual, like what you actually do I'm other a chubby than suburban dad. <laughs> I'm a chubby, chubby suburban dad saving the world one email at a time. <laughs> Yeah, no one else I know you write. Uh, I know, obviously, I know you write for the Federalist, I but I, is that I all you do now, time. or do you no, no. do you do secret no. so, and stuff um, on the side? Yeah, no, yeah, kind of the good old days. No, so now I mean I'm a local party chairman here and the state party director for veterans and military outreach on the political side, uh, and then um, uh, for my full time job, so I run the aerospace and defense practice and a management IT consulting firm. So I've got clients kind of all over the U.S. and, uh, and some across the globe. So I'll go into larger divisions of uh, uh, aerospace defense companies and help do um, some. Did you have any fallout from this up. big hack that just took place? Uh, fortunately, I did not. Um, you know, I've had clients before that have been hacked in the private sector, and uh, I can tell you, you know, cybersecurity is becoming increasingly more significant and pressing issue. Uh, you know, particularly for ransomware and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that's what I tell you. Change your password all the time. We all roll our eyes. We've got the same one, you know, logged out on Excel sheet for the last ten years. But there's a, there's a reason why they're telling you to do it. Well, it's funny that you say that. So I I don't know if it's because they just became aware, but Google, because they keep track of everything I do, it it's like you have a compromised <laughs> password, and so then I go click on it, and it's like showing me like these twelve websites that all have the same password, and I need to go change it. I'm like. They're like, we can change it for you on all of these these websites. I'm like, why do you have that much control? Why do you know that my password is password on all of these different websites? It's a little creepy. I'm not going to lie. It's super creepy. And it's, then I get this report. Much, yeah. I get this little report that comes to my email each month that says, look at all the places that you stopped by this month. And it'll show me, like, oh, you went to this coffee shop in Indianapolis. I'm like, okay. what? You know this. Anyway. It's a little creepy. I mean, I mean, that's what happens when you enable location services on your phone. But I mean, what you're observing there is why you know um, a lot, you know, a lot of crimes are being solved these days because people are uh, are not aware of all the things. Are that are stupid going on and leave that is, stuff turned yeah. on on their phone. <laughs> yeah, like I wasn't there, officer. Really, is that the reason your cell phone was pinging for the last like five hours? Um, you know, and you got credit card receipts from stores in the area, but yeah, no problem. You were about five hundred miles away. Sure. Um, you know, but at the same time, it also makes, you know, working the intelligence world much more difficult. Now you've got a digital footprint you've got to contend with in addition to a physical one. So oh, yeah, for how sure. do you account for all those things? You know, If makes, I were um, working in the know, intelligence sector, I'd have a track phone and it would have, it would just be like a, or the, what's it called? The jitterbug or whatever for old people. Like where you can only put like five phone numbers in there. Help, I'm spying and I can't get up. Yeah. Yeah, well, pretty you. much. Yeah. <laughs> This is just, don't worry about this button. That's just so my team can come in if I'm in trouble. That's all this is for. Um, Okay. So I want to talk about, okay, election stuff. All of the, I I don't, obviously, I don't want to talk about, like, conspiracy theories and all of the crazy shit that's out there because I try really hard. Although on my Twitter, like, I feed into it a little bit because every now and then I see shit and I'm like, God, this this really sounds believable. But then, like, I, I try really hard on my podcast to say pretty fact-based, but one thing that is super interesting to me is the changes that have been made this late in the game in the Department of Defense in the Pentagon. So I want to talk specifically, let's talk, okay, so you had mentioned Chris Miller earlier, so let's talk about him first. So before, 
Yeah. So he was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, and he was confirmed by Congress on August 6th. So he, after the, after the election, he was then named, uh, Esper was fired and Miller was named Secretary of Defense, which that's a, that's a pretty big shift and a, and a big move. And it's definitely unusual. Right. So why, if you're Chris Miller, do you accept that position? Because you're, in my opinion, you're tainting yourself at that point because they're already making lists of, you know, people who were supporting or participating in the Trump administration or whatever. Why, if you're Chris Miller, why do you take that job? Well, I think obviously there's some changes that he wanted to affect, which he saw uh, as necessary. I mean, so, I mean, I, I didn't know Chris particularly well, but he was a colleague. He was a contractor at the Undersecretary for Intelligence when I had moved over to Solik. Uh, and at the time um, I was at Solik, uh, it's kind of a weird shuffling of the chairs. So at that time, um, you had uh, Michael Lumpkin was the Assistant Secretary. So he was, he was a retired SEAL who had run against Duncan Hunter in California and lost, and the administration appointed him uh, at Solik. And then... Um, the previous uh, aide award, because there's always a, a full colonel from the uh, from Army Special Forces that's assigned as the military aide to the assistant secretary, ended up moving over to the uh, the National Security Council in charge of hostage policy. So I then stepped in to the the sensitive activities office there, and so I had hostage rescue. And um, uh, at that time, Mike was over at. Uh, so, yeah, so Mr. Lumpkin was still there at that point, and Chris Miller was over at the Undersecretary for Intelligence. So he had been a fifth group special forces officer and had retired and then was there working as a uh, as a contractor for the Undersecretary for Intelligence. So he, he had been around for quite a bit, basically working in this, because he had also worked for a sensitive unit as well. So he had been a special forces officer very early on during the invasion of Afghanistan and then moved into a much more sensitive unit. So he had already retired. He had a pension. Um, I mean, this was a guy who was really coming back uh to to do what he could for the country, if that makes right. any sense. And I don't think he really cared uh, about whether or not um, he got put on some list or something. I really don't think he cared. Okay. So in addition to guy. that, you had two other moves that were made at the same time. You had Ezra Cohen Watnick, who is Ezra. Mm-hmm. now the acting undersecretary. And then you've got Cash Patel, who's the chief of staff to Miller now. So, yeah. so there's a couple of, couple of issues there. So Mark, so Mark Mitchell was my counterpart at the NSC at that time for hostage rescue, and then Mark, Mark was also a Green Beret in fifth groups, and him and Chris were close friends, and that's why I remember seeing Chris, uh, a few, you know, more than once when I was at the Pentagon at that time. And so Mark became the acting assistant secretary for special operations. He wanted Distinguished Service Cross because he was one of the ones that led the response to the Montgomery Sharif prison uprising right in the beginning when Johnny Mike Spann was killed, the first first U.S. Right. casualty. He was a CIA officer at the time. Um, so it was kind of, we were all kind of floating in the same circle. I saw Mark last in D.C. at the OSS Society dinner probably like a year and a half ago now. Actually, it's kind of like almost, yeah, about, about a year ago, right before he stepped down. And so Chris then was, uh, was over on the National Security Council, uh, doing, uh, I think he was the counterterrorism advisor to the president. Um, so he then came over uh, to a very short stint at the Pentagon in the, in the role of the acting assistant secretary for Solik, where I had worked. And then, uh, very quickly went over to National Counterterrorism Center, which is a Senate-confirmed position, uh, which allowed him to then uh, perform an acting capacity to become Secretary of Defense. So 
he went over there alone with Ezra and some of the others um, because I think there was some significant pushback at the top of the Pentagon for the withdrawal of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And I think Chris, like many others, including myself, had realized that we've been in a strategic stalemate for a long time, um, that this was not going to be won militarily, and that the peace negotiations that were led by Ambassador Khalizad um, are uh, they're going particularly well. I mean, as good as they can go with dealing with the Taliban and a fractured organization, sure. but there's concrete steps being made towards an inter-Afghan reconciliation process and which would then allow us to withdraw the majority of our forces. I think Chris was seen as somebody who, um, you know, was known within the upper echelons of the administration and somebody who was going to go in there and actually execute the intent of the president. So, I mean, whether you agree with what the president wants to do or not, at the end of the day, it's commander-in-chief and he's giving orders. And unless they're illegal or immoral, there's an obligation to either follow them or resign. And so I think um, he had just had enough with Esper and Chris stepped in to do a couple things he thought was right, including changed the reporting structure for SOLEC. So now the uh, Assistant Secretary for Special Operations reports directly to the Secretary of Defense as opposed to the Undersecretary for Policy, which is a huge shift. Um, right. And so then, let's uh, talk about that, too. Like, I feel yeah, like we're kneecapping the CIA at this point. So, <laughs> which I, I don't necessarily disagree with. I'm okay with it. But for the counterterrorism operations that are taking place and the... SOS support that they were getting, I feel like that's being almost removed. Like they were kind of cutting off their relationship or at least not letting them take advantage of it. Would you say that's accurate or not? I mean, so the organizations have two very different missions. Um, you know, and I always like to joke, right? Like the DOD gets in trouble with the Department of Defense when it ends up trying to become, you know, James Bond, they're super spooky, even though we've got some sensitive intelligence units. Right. And while the agency has a paramilitary group or a paramilitary organization, that's not their forte either, their intelligence collection, you know, business. So I did find it kind of strange, the memorandum, though, where they were trying to pull, you know, DOD support for CIA counterterrorism missions because, yes, they've got a paramilitary branch, but, yes, we have DOD folks who are, you know, sent over there on assignment who are qualified for those roles and can't get any more detail about it. Um, but it sounded like there was more of a strategic push to get them to support uh, near-peer competition, which would not be your counterterrorism, you know, terrorist groups. This is, you know, China, Russia, North Korea, that right. kind of thing. It, it's interesting. I mean, but the guys that are being sent over there, that's not exactly the mission that uh, that they're trained for, right, in some cases. Right. So th- this reminded me of another bizarre kind of play, um, and I really don't understand why they're doing this at the last minute. Early on, when the, D- when the Director of National Intelligence was first created, right, this was a position that was made up as a result of the, Nas- of the 9-11 Commission because we weren't right. – doing intelligence sharing, and we need to synthesize information and whatnot, which sounds great. Um, which still doesn't work. The they power- still hide information from no. one another. But- <laughs> well, it happens all the time. It's compartmented, and you still don't have access. But uh, the DNI is kind of like, so the before that happened, the CIA was, CIA director was also the DCI, Director of Central Intelligence. And that was the head, the person who was in charge of the intelligence community by de facto, even though it wasn't a, a position of DNI. They created a separate position of Director of National Intelligence. The problem is it's got no budgetary authority. And in D.C., money is king. So if you've got no money, you've got no juice. And at right. one point, um, the DNI tried to, and I don't remember if it was Admiral Denny Blair or not. It might have been Admiral Blair, uh, tried to get involved in selecting who gets to be the, the chief of station. So the chief of station is the senior U.S. intelligence officer abroad at any particular embassy where we have a station, right? right. So that usually goes to a CIA case officer who's been through the farm, you know, selected by the CIA um, you know, in their process for selecting chiefs of station. 
But we also have other folks who go through the training required to be a case officer, and, you know, there's DOD folks and others, and then, you know, some folks are analysts. And I remember at one point, I think it was Blair, basically tried to get involved in this election process and, and said that he was going to determine who the chiefs of station were. Um, I think Panetta was CIA director at the time. I think that fight lasted about two weeks, and he lost and ended up resigning. Uh, so it, it's another one of these ridiculous <laughs> fights. The, it makes absolutely no sense. It's a non-controversial program. The support to the to the CIA's counterterrorism mission that they're doing, um, you know, and, and with our folks, it's, it, it, you're 100% right. It's hokey and it makes no sense. Looking big picture, but, or even in hindsight, I think about, like, Benghazi and the way that that whole situation played out. We're running guns to Syria, out of Libya, through the CIA, and you have DOD guys there as support. So, um, kind of, yeah. So we had, there were Department of Defense assets who happened to be present in theater, um, and they were tapped to them, you know, take part in the rescue mission to go, you know, try to help the guys that were there. But guys, the other um, military folks you're referring to, there, so most of those guys were GRS, which is the global global response staff. Most of the, the, yeah, pretty much. They're prior military, but they were contractors. So that was kind of their primary mission there. Um, yeah, I mean, if you read some of the open source accounts that the, you know, the ambassador was, you know, was there meeting with the Turkish ambassador on the day of the attack, you know, because we were allegedly, which I won't confirm or deny, we're sure. getting into it, um, you know, some of the uh, weapons transfers from Libya back to uh, Syria, anyway, through Turkey to arm the Syrian rebel to fight Assad. So, yeah, you have one of those interesting programs, allegedly, where you, you know, if you want untraceable weapons, the best place to get them is buy them off a battlefield, box them up and shove them. Somebody's got to do that. Why doesn't the CIA have their own assets that can protect them? Why why don't they have their own forces and their own training? Or why don't they? I guess maybe I just they I do. don't understand sometimes how why why we're using one to compensate for the other. I guess maybe is what my thought process is. Sure. So there are two different missions actually. So one, like you said, GRS, a global response staff that's you know designed to provide security for agency personnel while they're out there and also conduct some intelligence missions, whatever it is that they're up to. Right. Second is more where you've got the um, paramilitary forces, um, you know, where you've got, uh, you know, CIA has a paramilitary group, but then you also have our, you know, sensitive counterterrorism forces who are highly trained and skilled as well. Uh, in a lot of cases, when you've got these rotations, it's not a significant number of folks, but when they're over-supporting, just like any other opportunity to do a rotation somewhere, um, you know, you get some cross-pollinization. It's an opportunity to work with a different organization, and they do often work together in hostile areas, so... It fosters a spirit of cooperation, and then you trade tactics, techniques, procedures. So there's a lot of benefits to the program, um, and it's definitely a different mission set. Um, and there are some cases, uh, like, for example, if you look at the legalities behind the bin Laden raid, right, um, the United States Department of Defense operates under Title X United States Code, which is the, the, the authorities for defense for the Department of Defense. The CIA operates, or the intelligence community in this case, operates under Title 50, which is your counterterrorism and your intelligence community authorities, you know, loosely based. Anyway. So um, it often becomes, you know, which set of authorities you're operating under. So the Bin Laden raid, for example, was not launched under Title 10. It was under Title 50. So at that point, uh, the, uh, the squadron from SEAL Team 6 that was used was actually uh, formally uh, detached and assigned to the Central Intelligence Agency, and the mission was actually conducted by, uh, legally, by Director Panetta at the time. Uh, so the uh, the SEAL team reported to him and then up to the president uh, as a matter of legality under authority. So it's a combination of authorities and skill sets and missions. So, um, you know, there's some procedures, and I can't get into detail, but there's there are checks and balances that's, in place for events. No, go ahead. I'm, I was saying that's okay that you can't go into too much yeah. detail. I guess I just don't understand 
again, like you said, if the program's working, why are we trying to change it? Unless, do you think that there's possibly some intelligence there that is <clears throat> suggesting maybe the program's not working, the CIA's not doing what they're supposed to be doing? You know, it it almost reminds me of uh, when... Yeah, I mean, I can't... I don't necessarily know that it came... Um, I don't think it necessarily came from the White House. I think this, this could have actually been internal to DOD. Don't forget, Chris also comes from that, that sense of world. Um, right. It may have been more to force the hand, because, I mean, you don't, you've only got so many levers, right? Like, hey, um, you know, after 20 years of being used to provide sensitive counterterrorism forces, right? Is, is that, and that's all that you're good for? Like, the joke about the assistant, the associate director of central intelligence for military affairs, which is always a three-star special operations general who does like a year or two rotation at CIA, is that, you know, they get invited to all the cocktail parties and none of the meetings. So, like, when, <laughs> when you need, a, you know, when you need so, like, to have a good time, to... invite this person, but when you need to actually, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you basically, okay, when you need something, you need aircraft, you need planes, you need shooters to go jump in and go, you know, shoot somebody in the face. You got no problem picking up the phone, but, you know, you're saving basically the strategic mission sets and some of the others that are outside of counterterrorism for, you know, for yourself, which, well, quite frankly, it's their mission. So this, this looks like a heavy handed attempt to try to, use leverage or influence to, to get involved with a mission set that the, that the department wanted to. It's just a very bizarre way to go about Tiny? doing it. Yeah. Very strange. And, okay. yeah, I mean, the inaugurations in, what, a month? Yep. Five it's, weeks. So, yeah. So you, more, you think for sure regret. that Biden's going to be inaugurated? You don't think there's some secret no, big no report that's going to come out on Friday and save the world? Nope. Absolutely not. So I think um, – Whatchamacallit. I think, you know, the Electoral College voted. So very, very different, and people forget this, too. In 2000, when the Supreme Court overturned, or they didn't overturn, when they ordered the, the count to be stopped in Florida, George W. Bush was winning the count. So it right. wasn't like the courts overturned a standing verdict. In this case, you've got the results of five states that are being challenged, and that would have to overturn what, at least at this point, are like five million votes that are the difference in these, in these places. Now, obviously, people are making allegations of fraud or this or that, which the courts, would, they would have to go to the courts. So the dates for, there are some important dates that come up in the uh, Electoral College certification. So you've got the Electoral College that meets, you know, uh, to vote, and that's when the states have, and then the states have, I think, until, uh, so December 8th is this is called the safe harbor deadline. So that requires all election, the states to resolve all election-related disputes six days before electors cast their votes, Right. Right. So the states are expected to complete the votes, resolve any legal challenges, and certify the results by the state, commonly known as the safe harbor date. And then on December 14th, the electors vote in their states, right? Right. So that's when the electors will go ahead and cast the votes. And then on December 23rd is the deadline for states to certify uh, that the electoral votes have been received. So they have to until basically the day before Christmas Eve to get that done by the Constitution. And then finally on July, or July, January 6th, there's a joint session of Congress basically that meets where they, uh, where they count the electors' votes and declare the winners. So I, I don't, I haven't seen anything to date, legally speaking, that would indicate that, that any of these results are going to be overturned that would change the outcome of the Electoral College and, and, and keep the president in office. It's not, I just don't see it happening at all. Well, and I mean, you would know, you're working in the GOP, so I, you would have, you'd be privy yeah. to more of that information than most people would. So, like I tell everybody, if there's if there's evidence of sustained fraud that is that is sufficient to overturn the results of an election or cause a new one, then the courts will go ahead and take action. Um, and if they don't, uh, then you know the courts won't take action while they're there. And I know, guess maybe the, the day, part the part for me that's really hard 
as a a voting member who did vote for Donald Trump, I wouldn't say I'm a Republican. I'm I'm probably more libertarian. But the problem that I have is that election laws weren't followed. So you had or or just laws, period. You had governors and secretary of state and even some election commissioners changing federal election laws without going through the legislature. If any executive branch across the country has the power to change law without having to go through the legislature, what do we have left as a republic? Like, I don't understand how a single vote that was cast that violates the election law that is currently on the books for that state, I don't see how that counted, period. So I think that's that's where my frustration comes from. It's not necessarily, oh, I think – Dominion switched votes or anything like that. I think it just comes down, if if by law he won, then I don't have a problem conceding. I have a problem when I, I know for a fact that you went into, a, a Georgia, for example, you went into an agreement with the Democratic Party in a lawsuit and changed your verification procedures without going through your legislature. That's what I have a problem with. Yeah, and I think a lot of folks do, um, and they're trying to work their, their way through the courts on that. And, I mean, in some cases, like particularly here in Connecticut, you know, we're in, we're in a very blue state, they're talking about putting, um, you know, mandatory vote by mail on the ballot as constitutional amendment in 2022. And then, um, you know, the census. So that's the other reason people, you know, uh, don't realize this is such an important election too, right? The census uh, that took place in 2020 – uh, we'll determine the number of people in the nation, right? And then from there, we have, we divide those up amongst 435 house districts, right? And those districts are then apportioned by population, and some states will gain, some states will lose. Right. And as population shifts, is when you redraw, is when you redraw some of the district maps. And if you've heard the term gerrymandering, gerrymandering before, that's where you yeah. have, you know, yeah, exactly. We've got districts that are drawn in a manner in which they're, uh, you know, giving an advantage to one party or the other, and the state legislatures are largely responsible for doing that. So the preceding decade, the Republican Party picked up almost a thousand legislative seats across the nation, right? And right. then, um, you know, over the last couple of elections, we've seen some significant losses, largely in response to, you know, the president's style versus substance in many cases. Uh, you know, um, and, you know, that's going to have an impact coming up. So we're in for a couple of rough years here. I'm not going to lie to you. No, no, I know. I'm, I'm not excited about it. I've, I've been practicing my Chinese just just in case <laughs> at this point. Um, so I'm not kidding either. So you, I do it every night. <laughs> I speak a couple of languages, but Chinese is not one of them. So you can be my translator. <laughs> um, so let's shift gears a little bit. I sure. want to ask you, okay, so you, you were on the dark side, I call it. So like you were, you were in the government wheel of the huge machine do you think that yep. I, I rail against three things in this country? I rail against the media. I fucking hate our media. It is nothing but propaganda. I rail it's against editorializing, not enough news. Right, and I, I rail against lifelong politicians who literally just suck the tit off of the taxpayer. Like it's it is horrible watching mm-hmm. the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the even Mitch McConnell's, like, like I don't care what party you're in. If you've been in there for 60 years, you are completely out of touch with the people that you represent. So I have a problem with that. And then I have a problem with unelected bureaucrats making 
huge sweeping policy changes for the country. So I feel like, and I don't know if it's just because I've paid more attention over the course of the last couple of years, but I feel like the bureaucracy is controlling much more of the government than the actual government itself. I feel like the people who we elect are just the figureheads that are on television. The people who are actually moving the pieces and the parts that are taking place in this world are actually behind the scenes and we have no input on them being involved. Would you say, given your experience and being on that side of the equation, would you say that that's an accurate assessment or no? Uh, there are a decent number of bureaucrats with more power than people realize. Yes, that's true in terms of career officials. The the input that the American people have on those positions is limited. So, I mean, I worked at the largest bureaucracy in the world, which is the Pentagon. I mean, there was 30,000 people in that building. It has its own Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles inside of it, its own emergency medicine room. Uh, it's got a CVS with a full pharmacy, Best Buy. Um, I mean, and you couldn't get any more old school, like 1950s madmen. Literally the last three shops on the way out the door on the way to the metro is a chocolate shop, a jewelry shop, and a flower shop. Um, like, hey, I forgot the anniversary. Like, you couldn't make this shit up if you tried. There's two Starbucks there. There's a bodega-type Spanish deli on the second floor um, that's uh, – I forget, I think it's on the A ring, uh, one of them, like right off it, where it's, you know, bumping Latin music during the day. So it's definitely an interesting building. Um, you know, and I was joking with General Thomas, he's the former SOCOM commander on, uh, on Twitter the other day. Like, you could, you could probably get rid of 20, 30% of the building and nobody would even flash an eye, no one would know. Um, it's got, uh, I don't know how many zip codes, like 10 different zip codes in the building, depending on the Joint Staff, Army, Navy, OSD, which is just unreal. Um, but it, when you get into office as president, you have about 5,000 appointees. Um, and those are senior executive positions, usually at uh, different government agencies across the board. Basically, in most of the government agencies, the assistant secretary level and above, so assistant secretaries, undersecretary, the deputy who's the number two and the secretary proper, and then the directors of, like, central intelligence, the equivalent of a secretary, in all the executive departments and agencies have to be approved by the United States Senate. So they go through confirmation hearings and whatever else. You largely can't have, you know, you know Joe Shit the Ragman show up there with room temperature IQ, you know, like a warm 75, and get in that position. It's like it's not going to happen. You know, for the most part, Congress is going to stop that. And so those people are put in place um, right. to largely carry out the president's uh, agenda, whatever that happens to be. But, they, but yeah, there's a shitload of bureaucrats who work underneath them who are responsible for executing that stuff. And at the end of the day... You know, the, the term resistance, right? Do I think there's some, uh, like the, what's the, uh, the phrase everybody likes to use? Like it's, uh, like it's an organized conspiracy, like, um, uh, when it comes to the government. The uh, shadow there's, deep yes, there's state? A, the deep state and the deep state. So do I think there is a deep state as an organized conspiracy? No. Do I think there are a lot of people who didn't agree with the president's policies and actively did what they could within the, the authorities they had as bureaucrats to stymie them? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you literally had a report just come out that said that people who who were in that position literally mm -hmm. lied to the president about how many troops we had overseas so that he wouldn't pull them oh, all yeah. out. Oh, yeah. So those are so those are some of the uh, that's interesting because those are some of the senior folks, right? Yeah. Um, it's hard to to catch most of the bureaucrats uh, because, like you said, they're entrenched. Yeah, yeah, no problem, Bob. That process takes next long of time. I'll get back to you on Tuesday. And then, you know, there's so many other things going on and you get lost. But what you're talking about is not a bureaucrat. Those are senior political appointees who are keeping things for the President of the United States. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the reasons Esper, you know, is gone. Yeah. So not, uh, you know, it's not something you do. And, I mean, Mattis, at the end of the day, whether you love him or hate him, you know, he stood up and said, hey, I don't, I'm not comfortable executing or implementing the policy on Syria. 
uh, in the withdrawal of U.S. forces, and so he resigned. So he did the right thing, um, you know, actively sitting there and resisting uh, as a senior political official, especially a presidential appointee, is highly unusual. Never mind being inappropriate and illegal. Conceptually, it's really hard to look at it, and you're not. I don't work in the government, so I I I don't for you. sit there and. Probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to sit through was during the Russia collusion hearings, watching the Peter Strzoks and the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinmans and the Sally Yates and the like, all of the people who, Yovanovitch, the people who are actively working on behalf of what feels like other countries while we're paying their salaries. That's what I have a hard time with, I think. I I literally sat through... Those hearings and felt like, I'm sorry, I'm conflating impeachment and Russia collision. But in the impeachment hearings, watching people who are unelected bureaucrats talk about how we should be working on behalf of Ukraine. And it's just like, wait, what? No, no. (laughs) Given your experience and your background, what do you think is the most imminent threat to the United States? That depends. When you say imminent, what do you mean? You mean in terms of a physical threat? Um, like if something bad's going to happen to the citizens of this country, what do you, where do you think it's going to come from and what form do you think it'll take? So, I mean, the threat from transnational terrorism is still real. Um, it's not as significant as it was. It's been degraded, but it's something we constantly have to remain vigilant for. Um, you know, we've gotten very good at keeping people out of the country, identifying the threats from overseas, keeping them off flights, keeping them out of the country. Uh, but as you've seen, a lot of the attacks that have taken place have been self-radicalized individuals or people radicalized over the Internet uh, who conduct those types of attacks or domestic terrorists uh, that are already here in the U.S. So they probably represent the, the, the greatest significant physical threat inside the, inside the U.S. Um, you know, we're not likely to get into a conflict with uh, a near-peer competitor like Russia or China anytime soon. Uh, but we're, you know, what we call like a hot war, but we are very, very much engaged in a cold war with both China and Russia once again uh, as a result of just, you know, we we don't align on our views when it comes to, you know, foreign policy, you know, um, uh, security. I mean, just about anything. They're, they're, they see things differently than we do. So it puts us in a natural collision course. I've done a lot of research on the, like the J-1 visa program, Chinese taking advantage of that. Our research programs are completely shit as far as I'm concerned. There's no accountability whatsoever for the Thousand Talents program and the combination where China said, you know what, it's really smart for us. We're just going to combine our civilian and our military force together to bolster our country. And I feel like we're at a huge disadvantage. And I feel like this new administration is really not taking that Seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's, I've had a problem with the folks that are coming back in general. So, I mean, I looked at the entire Pentagon landing team. Vast majority of them, nine out of ten, had previously served as an assistant secretary or acting or actual undersecretary for policy. So, I've worked with most of them, even though it was only there for about a year. But, I mean, since I had the sense of activities portfolio, my, the stuff I was working on spanned geographic and functional areas. So, I had to see them all, on, you know, on a regular basis, you know, daily. I'm briefing them on what, what things were going on. Um, and there was, yeah, there was this sense, if you remember, because it stems back to the President's attitude. If you remember President Obama, they're saying, hey, ISIS is the JV team. You know, Russia, right. you know, call, the 80s called, they want their foreign policy back. They had that stupid reset button with Russia that didn't actually say reset. You know, it was kind of like a joke. You know, Alex, it, I swear to God, a, I feel like I up, like I, I did a update on my computer and I went back to, like, Windows 2000 or something. Like, it's like, it's like the... Yeah, I mean... It's just the last four years didn't happen. It's version 2.0. Yeah, 
And that's exactly what it looks like. Those same folks are coming back, and they have the same attitude that, you know, we can really get along with the Russians if we try, and we need to reach out to the Iranians. Like, there is a fundamental misunderstanding that we do not, our, our objectives do not align, right? They yeah. are not going to be our friends. No, we don't necessarily need to be adversaries and be as hostile as it is. But, you know, this whole, I'm going to shake my hand, you know, we're going to be nice to each other, and I'm going to, you know, go easy on you with sanctions and give you a little bit more breathing room as we try to work out some of these deals. I mean, it's just they've, ta- they've all taken advantage every single time, and they remain, you know, uh, adversarial towards us. And, you know, nothing worse than the Iranian nuclear program. I mean, it, quite literally, the Iranian nuclear enrichment program that they've had as part of their weapons program, this all was built in a cave dug out under a mountain with 90-degree curved entrances to defeat incoming cruise missiles, okay? You don't have a peaceful program that's built that way. Right. Like, it's it's, it's total, <laughs> it's a load of crap, okay? So aggravating. And try to explain to some people that, you know, they're, they don't understand on the, on the nuclear side of enrichment, right? So the enrichment process is not kind of hard to explain. And there's some terms I think a lot of folks will be familiar with. So um, do you recall during the run-up to the Iraq war, you know, there were accusations that Saddam was looking for, quote, yellow cake? Yep. Right? If you remember. So uranium itself, right, which is a common um, element that's used in the enrichment process to, per- to provide or to make fissile material for a bomb, is found in the ground naturally as a stone, and it's yellow in color. So when you grind it up, it literally looks like yellow like yellow cake mix, like, like, uh, like you get at the grocery store. So right. that's where the term yellow cake comes from. When, when it's ground up, when it's found in its natural element, it's around one point, one, between one and, and one, one and a half or 175 percent U-235, and then the other 98 percent or so is about, uh, is U-238. So U-238 is useless, U-235 is the fissile material you need. So when you heat that into a gaseous state, right, it goes from a solid into a gas, you have two different molecular weights there, the U-235 and U-238. So when you have that heated gas in a centrifuge, right, if you take a bucket of water at the beach and spin it in a circle, you get that centrifugal force where the water sucks the outside of the bucket, you end up with that vortex in the center of air. That's because air is or the water is heavier than the air is. Same thing if you if you calibrate the centrifuges to spin at the exact right RPM, you can get where the U two thirty eight is sucked to the outside and free floating in the center you've got the U two thirty five fissile material. So when you then cascade that U two thirty five that's you know kind of floating in the center there from one centrifuge to another you continuously increase the purity in terms of how much um, U-235 material is there. And that's what they're saying, enriched uranium. It's enriched, the, the amount of U-235 that's there is enriched. So that process that's used, right, and, you know, if you need to get to 20% enriched uranium for medical purposes, um, you know, and then 90% for a weapons grade is, I mean, there's some other things that have to be done, but it's largely the same, which is why right. the Iranians should have never been permitted to keep that technology in the first place, which is why the Israelis and everybody else said no. But, you know, they were worried about keeping maximum pressure on it from the Chinese and the Russians. And so they caved and they came up with this deal because they were so desperate to avoid war that they re- all they did was kick the can down the road. It didn't stop them from building a damn thing. You know, they continued to have a clandestine program as we're seeing now. And if you look at news reports that came out recently, you know, the IAEA found that Iran has got uranium that's 12 times what it's supposed to be. And the only reason that happened is because they were allowed to keep the technology. So that's what the, you know, the Iran nuclear deal that was in place was garbage. Um, and folks will say, well, what, you know, what's a better option? Well, the better option is a better deal. They shouldn't have been permitted to keep that technology. And, you know, where most Americans don't understand is domestically in Iran, um, you know, the nuclear program is a matter of pride. They're a very ancient culture with a history of math and science 
you know, and that they see this as a scientific achievement, um, you know, that's important to them culturally. So there's a domestic political blowback possibility that their government's seeking to avoid in this as well. So that's also what's playing into this. But, uh, yeah, are we going to go right back into negotiating with the Iranians again? I'm, I'm sure we will. So I'm just going to see how many catastrophic, you know, mistakes we've made. But let's, let's, so when let's you talk about enriched uranium, mm-hmm. talk to me about why we would give a large percentage of ours to Russia. Why, why is that a policy during the Obama administration? Why was that a smart idea for us to do that? I don't know that it necessarily was either. We do have security agreements with different countries, um, and I know at one point the Russians were even an option supposedly to provide some of the enriched uranium to the uh, to the uh, Iranians. But again, See, that's what I thought. So, but I mean, I'm yeah. Who am I? No, you're not. You're not. You're not crazy. Um, it's it's just disconcerting. I mean, when I saw the like again getting back to you know you know 2.0 as you call it, right? Like the last four years didn't happen. When I looked at the Atlantic article that uh, or essay that allegedly was written by you know President-elect Biden. What came out of that in there was a glowing review of General Austin, uh, you know. And so General Austin was my core commander in 2008. I was on the staff in 2010 when I was over there as a contractor and special programs officer. We would brief him on the weird stuff we were up to. So I got a little bit of a chance to know him. I was not going to pretend that we were close friends or I was a primary staff member. But in 2010, we were withdrawing from Iraq. Nobody at the headquarters thought this was a good idea. The Iraqi army was largely a joke at this point. They still weren't, you know, really responsible for security. They were collecting pay, you know, acting like, you know, goofballs in some cases. They did have some good units. Right. But the U.S. was still primarily, the, you know, the uh, the stick that was wielded if there was a major issue. And then when we disappeared, you know, they didn't want to go fight the whack jobs themselves. The, the committed hardcore ones were willing to kill themselves. They, they left their uniforms they banned the battlefield, which is exactly what we knew was going to happen. And nobody at the White House wanted to hear it. And Biden was in charge of the Iraq portfolio. And then Austin goes to the vice chief of staff of the army and then goes over to CENTCOM. And the CENTCOM commander is the guy responsible for fighting all the wars in the central command area of responsibility, which includes Iraq and Afghanistan. And during that time, we had a two-star special operations general, Mike Nagata, who was given the mission of training, um, you know, the free Syrian army to provide the ground force to whatever, you know, bullshit excuse for a strategy the Obama administration had after calling them JV. And the program was largely a failure. ISIS continued to expand. They were killing people, destroying cultural heritage sites, taking over massive, you know, swaths of territory in Iraq and Syria, which then the U.S. spent two years fighting to take back, right? Right. Nagata got fired, and, you know, Austin essentially escaped that whole entire episode scot-free. And then Biden cites his oversight of the Iraq withdrawal in 2010 as qualifications for him to be the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> I'm like, in what fucking world is this a qualification? Like, he literally oversaw the creation of the vacuum in which ISIS uh-huh. formed that almost undid 10 years of U.S. gains in that country. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more idiotic if you could possibly pay me. The no, guy's got a 35-year career. It fits. <laughs> it may be idiotic, but it completely fits with absolutely everything at this point. I'm up is down. Yeah, well, I mean, but it scared me because it said to me, like, it's not in the moment where you're debating policy, right? It happened. Right. We know it created a vacuum. We know ISIS formed. We know the damage that ISIS did. So this is a hindsight and, situation. You have you have that benefit, and you're still yes. I mean, this is but this is typical and constant with these people. And here's what and here's what I mean when I say that. Right. That that essay didn't just go from Joe Biden to the Atlantic. It went through his entire little organization and shop where they got you know vetted and people looked at it. So nobody in there managed to catch the fact that they were touting the, the single biggest strategic blunder since disbanding the Iraqi army 
has qualifications for this guy to be Secretary of Defense. I mean, could you imagine if President Trump had said, hey, I'm nominating Paul Bremer to be Secretary of Defense because I was really fucking impressed that time he oversaw the disbanding of the Iraqi army. I mean, that's literally the equivalent of the stupidity of the logic. Yeah. Oh, geez. And, and, but again, this is par for the course. Take what happened in Libya. The Department of Defense and the CIA both said when they were looking, you know, what was going on with the Arab Spring and Gaddafi, right? There is right. no U.S. national security interest in overthrowing Gaddafi. He keeps the whack jobs at bay because they're a threat to his power. It's a strongman theory, kind of the way right. the president's chosen to keep, you know, uh, Bashir al-Assad in power, right? Yep. So with the benefit of hindsight and running and campaigning on how Republicans are screwed up for invading Iraq and having no plan for a post-Saddam Iraq that, you know, we ended up in a giant counterinsurgency situation with a void of government, void in governance and a security nightmare, what do they do? There's no viable opposition force in waiting, as there is in most countries with a dictator, because they've killed all of them, and they overthrow this fucking guy, and there's no government and no security. Yep. And then Benghazi happens. Let's do it again. They're all scratching their asses. They're trying to figure out what the hell happened. And I'm like, you literally just, you campaigned on this for four years. Bush is fucked up. Please elect me. Please elect me in office. And Libya is still a nightmare. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's like ready to pull your hair out when you listen to this crap. Yeah, you know, and Biden's for this, but he's again, he's, you know, for the invasion of Iraq, but against the surge, against the bin Laden raid, for overthrowing, uh, you know, Mubarak in Egypt. Even the Israelis called up and said, what the fuck are you people doing? But like, leave and, them in power. Why would you do this? And don't kill Qasem Soleimani either. That was, that was a horrible move. How atrocious for you to kill a, a terrorist. Oh, that piece of shit. So, yeah, that guy, he is responsible personally for overseeing the plans for money and weaponry and some of the people sent in the country that, that killed four to 500 U.S. troops at least. Yeah, um, no, you know, I know. He's, he's a working. fucking piece of shit. He, he is. I spent a lot of time chasing his, uh, his folks and, you know, um, I, I ended up in street battles with him. I mean, that's the, the photos in the New York Times. Um, and not good people. And I mean, it was a very, you know, we, we had been sitting there as a boxer taking jabs in the nose from them for quite some time. And I think the run-up to the events people forget is right before that happened. The, so the Iranians are known to sponsor Katusha rocket attacks, which are 107-millimeter rockets they give to the militia forces, who then launch them on the bases over in Iraq trying to kill us. They ended up killing some U.S. service members, right? And then we bombed the hell out of one of their weapons depots over there um, and killed some of the folks that were there, basically letting them know, like, hey, we know it was you. Knock it the fuck off. Right. Then they decided to conduct another attack and threaten the embassy. And that's when the president was like, you know what? I'm done. And so the options were brought back to him for what to do about it. And the most extreme was to take out uh, Soleimani. And uh, sure enough, he pulled the trigger. He said, I've had enough. Which was a smart move. He's got a pair of balls. I mean, uh, Soleimani had the relationships, the long term, the money, everything else. Um, yes, did somebody take over? But do they have the gravitas of the relationships of the other groups? No, not at no. all. It sent a very clear, strong message while we were over there, um, you know, that we're not going to sit there and take this crap from them and that you can't conduct terrorist operations killing U.S. forces. Um, you know, we were not we're not conducting offensive operations. This, these were U.S. forces stationed inside of a base that were not out acting hostile to Iranian interests, but uh, the Iranians still wanted to uh, exercise some authority, and they killed U.S. forces. And you know what? The president said, I'm not going to stand for it. I want to talk about the peace deals, because mm-hmm. over the course of the last, what, four months, I'd say, They've worked really hard on getting some of these relationships. I call them peace deals. We know they're trade deals. The interesting thing that I have found is since the election, the language, like if you go to Google right now and you type in Arab-Israel peace deals or Mm -hmm. Trump's peace deals or something along those lines, 
you can't find, at least on the first page, one single positive article regarding these these negotiations. Every single article talks about how this has set back, you know, the Middle East and we have to go in and fix this and, you know, that kind of language. To me, what it looks like is Trump is trying to isolate and suffocate Iran is really what he's doing with these relationships. I would love to see before he is out the door, I'd love to see a relationship between like a publicly stated relationship signed between Israel and Saudi Arabia. I I would fucking love to see that take place before he leaves office. Talk to me about whether or not you think this has been an effective strategy or how you see that playing out moving forward. Do you think that Biden is going to try to, I mean, essentially negate those relationships? What do you think that's going to look like? Um, I think, you know, the Iranians at this point are still hostile. They still don't trust the United States. So there's definitely, there's a void of trust. So even if we don't believe that we're at war with them, they believe that we are. Um, you know, which is something interesting. I think General Thomas mentioned that not that long ago, that there, there's a difference in the way we see each other. So, uh, again, I think they it would take a significant change in the players on their side of the aisle for anything to really change. Because even if, you know, President-elect uh, Biden comes into office, gets sworn in, and says, you know, I'm going to go over and hug and kiss the guy tell over there and have a nice time, um, they're, they're not going to be receptive to that. Um, right. And we can try to push as much as we want. We, as long as we remain diametrically opposed in our uh, policy beliefs and outcomes, um, we're simply, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to ride in the same place. And the means that they use to try to project their power in the region uh, is, you know, through acts of violence, terrorism. That's something that we're simply not going to stand for. So we've got too much that hasn't and can't be recognized, reconciled in the short term uh, for us to see some sort of serious mending of relationships. But I think it'll definitely, it won't be as hostile as it was. Um, you know, it's just a question. I think the Iranians are going to test them and see how much they can get away with, uh, which is typical. I mean, that's essentially what happened during the last administration, right? Uh, the Chinese had uh, hacked a number of corporations without any real significant blowback. You know, there was the invasion of Ukraine, the Syrian red lines. Um, I mean, you name it, and, and nothing got done. The, you know, the withdrawal from Iraq, you know, ISIS's JV. And at the very end, the Russians realized they could get away with their election interference game that they played. And uh, the, you know, they were right, because whenever you conduct an action as a president of the United States or a foreign leader, you you take into account as part of the decision-making process is what's the most dangerous and then what's the most likely course of action you're, that an adversary is going to take in response to what it is that you're doing. So I think um, that uh, the calculated decision was made that, hey, you know, the, the most you know aggressive thing that President Obama would do would be X. Not going to happen, though. What's the most likely course of action? He's really not going to do anything about it. And Putin was right. Um, you know, the most right. significant action that was taken is President Obama told him on the sidelines of an international summit to, quote, knock it off in relation to what the Russians pulled in 2016. Right. So, and again, while they didn't do anything significant enough to affect the vote, look at the outcome in terms of the polarization of the nation. And their their goal from the Mueller report was to sow societal discord. Right. And they succeeded. And, it and, this all, and it all happened under their noses. The Obama administration knew for six months before the election that the Russians were up to this, and they didn't do shit about it. So when I sit here listening to John Brennan's bullshit, I'm like, you were the sitting CIA director when this happened. Right. And now you want to blame the Trump administration for all this stuff. This well, and not even that. Like, you're, you had, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the whole FISA process. Fucking right. Carter Page was an informant for the CIA. And, yeah. 
the CIA didn't disclose that. Or if they did disclose that to the FBI, then the FBI really fucked up and lied about it. But Yeah, I mean, there, there was the forging of the documents that are there. I don't think we're done by any means. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, the U.S. attorney for Connecticut, uh, who's been tasked to continue on as special counsel in the next administration, he's a fair man. He's prosecuted mafia figures, Democrats, Republicans. He'll... He'll get to the bottom of it if there's if there's a there there, but I think it's certainly um it's just really hard to have watched all of this play out over the course of the last yeah. four years and watch one little fucking pissant agent who I, I would argue had to have been instructed to change a three o two but maybe he wasn't maybe he did it of his own accord, but then that's that's it that's what we're looking at at this point that's insane so that's the promise how much how much was put in writing because you have to prove intent and all for a lot of these crimes right so if right. you can't prove the intent, you can't convict and that's that's the problem you're going to run into <laughs> so have... it's only when these people are dumb enough to text something or put it in writing that they're getting caught. Well, and you have them standing up there under oath. I, I don't recall. I don't recall that meeting. I don't recall that. Mm-hmm. If you for, To be a federal agent who is responsible for major investigations, you don't recall a lot of shit. Yeah. Well, he's just full of shit. That's why. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the bottom line at the end of the day. That's true. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a clown show. I mean, some of the best people I worked with in government were FBI agents, but I'm, I, it's like watching a clown show at the top sometimes. Like, I don't know what the hell these people were thinking. And I mean, I think it's, it's what they thought. You know, the president, uh, President Trump was not going to get elected. It was going to be Hillary that there was some shady shit going on in their minds. They were going to get to the bottom of it, but they had to cut a couple of corners to get there. They'd do it. And then lo and behold, President Trump wins and it's like, oh, we fucked up. Yeah. And that's essentially where we landed. Crazy. Well, yeah. I just hope I hope Trump declassifies everything, just all of it. Just turn WhiteHouse.gov into WikiLeaks and just put it all out there. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that the information is declassified, too, because at the end of the day, you know, let it all out there and let the cards fall where they may and the American people can read for themselves. And then we can yeah. this bullshit again who's not. What I really wanted to happen in my perfect world, in my mind, I wanted him to pardon Julian Assange. And bring him in as and and then buy CNN and make Julian the CEO of CNN and then all of it. But anyway, all right, love. Thank you so much for coming all on right. with me. I really appreciate. I'm it. sorry I took up so much of your time to your wife and no, your kids. I'm sorry. Right. I really very much appreciate you. Anytime. Glad we got a chance to talk. No, right, just thanks. to go harass people on Twitter. Yeah. Bye, Alex. Take care. Bye. I was in such a hurry to let Alex go so he could be with his family. I forgot to give him the opportunity to do his shameless plug. Um, you can follow him on Twitter. It is at Alex, A-L-E-X, Pleatsas, P-L-I-T-S-A-S, on Twitter. And that is the most um, common form of communication I've found that he uses. So um, please go follow him. He has all the great, um, all the great things to say on there. You guys take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death.